I'm Julie Sabatier, and this is Rendered. There's a lot of unique gifts that you can't find anywhere else, and I love that handmade touch. Now it's become much more mainstream, and so some of the vendors on there are selling, um, I guess, pop culture items as well. Chances are you've heard of the crafty online marketplace Etsy. And if you're listening to this show, you've probably even bought or sold something there. But you may or may not know that Etsy very recently became a publicly traded company. Yeah, I heard that. I think I actually got an email from Etsy. Etsy started trading as a public company on April 16th, the day after it priced its IPO. An initial public offering, that means you are deciding to basically go from being a private company to being a public company, which means you are offering shares to public investors, shares of your company. This is Miriam Godfrey, or as I like to think of her, my IPO spirit guide. She's a reporter for The Wall Street Journal, and she was very patient with my non-business reporter questions about what it means for a company to go public. What would motivate a company like Etsy to do that? The main thing that would motivate them is money. Companies like Etsy begin as startups, and they get a lot of venture capital money, or they get money from their founders, which allows them to grow through the early stage. But then at some point, the investors want to get out, uh, or they want some return on their investment. And the way to do that is to offer shares to the public. Um, So that's the primary driver of an IPO. Etsy is 10 years old. Over the past decade, the company has honed its image as the place to go online to buy goods directly from the people who made them. I actually bought my wedding dress on Etsy, and they've got all kinds of stuff, from hand-knitted sweaters and custom furniture to more bizarre items like soap in the shape of a Thanksgiving turkey and jewelry made from dentures. The site got so big that it even inspired a kind of spin-off. Some of you might remember our interview a couple of years ago with April Winchell. She's the founder of the now-defunct website Regretsy where she featured the silliest, weirdest, and most overpriced items on Etsy. You can go to our website to listen back to that one. Rendered intern Sasha Peters took to the streets of Portland to ask people about their impressions of Etsy. Etsy's cool because it's how small businesses thrive. I've been thinking about actually starting my own store on Etsy.com. Um, it's a great place for entrepreneurs to, um, you know, get on board with that and definitely market themselves. People tend to feel that Etsy will become more of like this corporate giant rather than um, its small um, local feel that it tends to have. Whether it's going to be the same after the IPO or previously, no, it definitely won't be the same, but I can't say if that's better, worse, or indifferent. If they're ready to do it, then I I say go for it. (laughs) Investors seem to be taking Etsy pretty seriously. It's being called New York's biggest tech IPO since 1999. On the first day of trading, Etsy executives rang the opening bell at the Nasdaq Stock Exchange in Times Square. Online marketplace Etsy soared in its Wall Street debut. The top execs at Etsy marked its first day as a public company in the most Etsy way possible by ringing a set of handmade and vintage bells. But a lot of the media coverage of the company itself leading up to the IPO has glossed over some of the very big questions Etsy has waded into lately. Like, what is the definition of handmade exactly? And what does it mean for a company at the heart of the maker movement to sell itself to shareholders? These questions are key to Etsy's success or failure as a publicly traded company. Now seems like a good time to let you know that Etsy couldn't speak to me for this show. 
They're in what's called the quiet period, mandated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. That basically means they can't make any public comments for a period of time leading up to and following their IPO, because that could affect the value of the stock at this critical moment. I'm hoping that after the dust settles, I can bring you a follow-up with Etsy's CEO, Chad Dickerson. But for now, Etsy will speak in another voice. Hi there. This is my friend Jason Rouse. He's going to be playing the part of Etsy. Ahead of the IPO, the company released a public document called a prospectus. In 289 pages, it details Etsy's finances over the past three years and lays out the company's mission statement. Our mission is to reimagine commerce in ways that build a more fulfilling and lasting world. It's perceived risks. If we are unable to retain existing members and attract new members who contribute to an active community, our growth prospects would be harmed and our business could be adversely affected. How it intends to spend the capital it wants to raise by going public. We may use a portion of the net proceeds to fund the build-out of our new corporate headquarters. And the document's got a whole bunch of other stuff in there, too. We believe that Etsy has the long-term potential to transform the world economy into one that is more people-centered and community-focused. One that values and honors designers and makers, and one that creates stronger connections among people who make, sell, and buy goods. We believe in an economy that transcends price and convenience, one that emphasizes relationships over transactions and optimizes for authorship and providence. We call this the Etsy economy. Etsy was founded in Brooklyn in 2005. Even though it's been around for a while, Etsy has yet to turn a profit. In fact, the company lost more in 2014 than it did in the previous two years combined. We have a history of operating losses, and we may not achieve or maintain profitability in the future. It seemed weird to me that a company would go public before becoming profitable. So I asked Wall Street Journal reporter Miriam Gottfried if that's unusual. No, unfortunately not these days. Um, Tech companies are going public right and left with no profits. Um, I'm thinking of Twitter, um, which went public not all that long ago. And... um, you know, remains pretty much unprofitable to this day. Etsy's share price on the day of its IPO was $16 a share. And on the first day of trading, it opened at $31 a share and ended the trading day at $30 a share. That means anyone who held initial shares made a lot of money on day one. And Etsy did something unusual with their IPO. The company set aside shares for individual people who might want to invest in the company. Small investors could buy up to $2,500 worth of shares. The idea was to open the IPO to regular people who have a connection to Etsy. It's very rare that any shares of a hot IPO would be allocated to individual investors. That is very rare. Almost never can an individual investor get those shares. So whether we're talking about a big hedge fund or an Etsy seller who decided to buy into the IPO, everybody who held those initial shares nearly doubled their money on the first day. It basically started the day as a $1.8 billion company and ended the day as a $3.3 billion company. Small investors accounted for 15% of the shares. The rest of the shares went to institutional investors like mutual funds and hedge funds. Etsy's nine executive officers and founders made $38 million collectively from the IPO, and the company's initial investors made $53 million. Goldman Sachs and the other firms that served as underwriters for the IPO walked away with a chunk of change as well. 
All of this just proves that attracting investors to a company that's not yet profitable isn't that hard. Amazon isn't all that profitable compared to its Chinese counterpart, Alibaba, which went public in September. And this is just one of the many reasons that investing doesn't make a lot of sense to lay people like me. But Etsy has a unique conundrum when it comes to its profitability. The authenticity of our marketplace and the connections within our community are important to our success. If we are unable to maintain them, our ability to retain existing members and attract new members could suffer. What does authenticity mean in this context? Um, I think, you know, that's difficult to say. I would say that it probably has to do with, you know, the uniqueness of the products, the fact that they are made by real people, not made in a factory, um, not something that you could buy in bulk at Costco, um, you know, something that could really stand out and have someone say, hmm, where did you get that from? Yeah. And is there a natural contradiction between, and not just for Etsy, but in general, between remaining, quote unquote, authentic and becoming a public company? I really think there is. You know, nobody asked me, but if I had been someone at Etsy uh, working there, I would have said, I would have really questioned the wisdom of going public. I just think that the company doesn't necessarily make sense as a public company um, because of this contradiction. Nothing compromises indie cred quite like becoming a publicly traded company. I mean, it's literally selling out. And in Etsy's case, this isn't solely about the company's coolness factor. The value of the company is directly linked to the image they project to their clientele. And we're not just talking about Etsy's buyers here. They can't alienate sellers in this process, and that is really a crucial thing. Millions of sellers, 86% of them women, have come to depend on Etsy. To say that Etsy depends on its sellers is almost an understatement. Last year, 55% of Etsy's revenue came from fees charged to sellers for listings and sales on the site. Another 42% came from seller services like promoted listings, direct checkout, shipping labels, etc. That means that 97% of Etsy's 2014 revenue, or $191 million, came from its sellers. Even before it became a household name, Etsy was revolutionary for crafters like Grace Dobush. I had had like my own online store for a couple years, which was literally just like hand-coded HTML website, um, like asking people to send me money via check or a money order. <laughs> um, so it was really like old school. And so when Etsy came around in 2005, 2006, a friend of mine who also had a craft business told me about it. And I was like, oh, yeah, like this is this is what I've been waiting for. It just seemed like a very smart solution to a problem that a lot of makers had been having. Grace makes paper crafts like handmade journals and hand-printed cards. She organizes the semi-annual Crafty Supermarket in Cincinnati, where she lives. She's also a freelance writer and the author of the Crafty Superstar Ultimate Craft Business Guide. The volume of shoppers that Etsy brings is absolutely valuable. And those eyeballs, like none of us could have gotten on our own. And at the time, it meant more to Grace than just sales volume. Handmade wasn't yet like a really hot thing. And, you know, there perhaps was an idea that we could upend the consumerist economy. 
Whether you're trying to start a crafty revolution or just sell off some goods from your basement workshop, Etsy has always had a very low barrier to entry. It charges sellers a flat 20 cent listing fee for each item and a 3.5% transaction fee for each sale. When the site first launched though, everything was free. That made it easy for a company with no name recognition to attract crafters like Grace and Abby Glassenberg. I design sewing patterns for stuffed animals and dolls. And I also have a blog, which is called While She Naps, where I write about the home sewing industry and creative entrepreneurship. Abby lives in Wellesley, Massachusetts. She started her blog in 2005, the same year Etsy launched, and she opened her Etsy store shortly after that. She hadn't sold anything online before. Way back in 2005, online sales were still something of a novelty, and nobody had really heard of Etsy. They would say Etsy, Esti, they didn't know what I was, you know, they didn't know what the word meant. Online shopping was still something that people were hesitant to do. You know, do you really want to put your credit card online? Is that safe? Um, So it was, you know, it was small. There weren't that many people who were willing to buy online, and there weren't that many people who knew how to sell online. Now, of course, all of that has changed. Only your weird uncle is afraid to buy things online. And crafters have a lot more choices about where to sell their goods. Etsy is also the go-to for people looking to buy crafty goods, or at least goods that present themselves as crafty. In 2015, listing something you made on Etsy is as much of a no-brainer as listing your podcast on iTunes. Abby now has a store on her own website, but 40% of her sales still come from people who find her on Etsy. You can't pay for an ad anywhere that would be better and more effective than what you just get from having an Etsy shop, honestly. Like, right now, while we're speaking, people are buying things from my Etsy shop. If Abby sounds like she's giving you the hard sell, it's because she knows that people are unhappy with Etsy. The disillusionment started long before the announcement about the IPO. I don't know that I can pinpoint exactly the moment it changed, Um, but, you know, people grumble For sure. And now that grumbling is like a roar. We'll get to some of the reasons behind the roar in a moment. But first, I want to make sure you know about another awesome show on the Maximum Fun Network. I listen to Bullseye for the moment when Jesse asks an artist an insightful question and the artist goes, oh, huh, and pauses. You can hear in the pause that he is reassessing his own work in light of the question that Jesse just asked. Bullseye's your guide to what's good from MaximumFun.org and NPR. And while we're taking a little break here, I just want to say thanks again to everyone who supported us in the Max Fun Drive. You guys rock. That bonus PDX carpet material I promised you is available now in our iTunes feed if you haven't heard it yet. And our engineer, Brian, is hard at work on the blooper reel. Please don't make me look too bad, Brian. Okay, now back to the show. A big thing people complain about when they complain about Etsy is its inconsistency. In the last few years, the company has changed how it curates the front page for each viewer, how the search function works on the site, and other things that directly affect sellers' ability to get the most out of their Etsy shops. The most disruptive change Etsy sellers are still grumbling about came a couple of years ago. In October 2013, we expanded our ecosystem by allowing Etsy sellers to work with small batch manufacturers. 
This decision to allow manufactured goods on Etsy made big waves among sellers. Etsy CEO Chad Dickerson addresses this directly in the letter from Chad section of the prospectus. And again, while these words were written by Chad Dickerson, you're hearing them in the voice of Jason Rouse. I've heard concerns that by allowing our sellers to partner with responsible manufacturers, we are diluting our handmade ethos. I share our community's desire to preserve what is special about Etsy. After all, Etsy has always served as an antidote to mass manufacturing. We still do. With our vision of responsible manufacturing, we're promoting a new people-centered model in which artisans can preserve the spirit of craftsmanship and grow responsibly by collaborating with people at small batch manufacturers to make their goods. The decision garnered a lot of comments on Etsy's forums, as well as other places on the internet. Some sellers reported that their sales tanked once their handmade goods had to compete with factory-produced items at lower prices. Grace Dobush decided to shut down her Etsy store in a very public way. She wrote about her decision for Wired in February of this year under the headline, How Etsy Alienated Its Crafters and Lost Its Soul. They're a gigantic company, and my opinion of them has changed over the years from being that, like, yeah, Etsy's for us, by us, to being like, well, Etsy's actually just a giant corporation that is giving a service to the handmade community, but they don't actually care about us individually. So, you know, it's not the savior that crafters had hoped it was or that it potentially could have been. Others saw Etsy's policy change as an opportunity. You may have heard about a very successful Etsy store called Three Bird Nest, run by a woman in California named Alicia Schaffer. How would you like to turn your hobby into a seven-figure income? Alicia Schaffer is one of the most successful sellers on the online marketplace Etsy, pulling at least $70,000 a month. Alicia's boho creations have made her one of the top five grossing stores on the site. As for her secret, she says there is none, just hard work and a supportive family. At first, this narrative about Three Bird Nest was widely reported. And I really don't have time to get into all the ways that it's problematic. Like, how is her being a mom relevant exactly? And what the hell is boho? Anyway, this was followed by more skeptical, responsible journalism in the New York Times and elsewhere, asking, how could one person with a dozen helpers possibly fill enough orders for scarves, headbands, and knitted leg warmers to rake in $70,000 a month? Abby Glassenberg wrote about it on her blog. She's, you know, importing cargo, like huge containers of acrylic scarves from from overseas factories and then selling them on Etsy. Um, I guess to me it's really too bad because it just perpetuates this myth that you can just, you know, knit constantly and make a million dollars on Etsy, which is ridiculous and has always been ridiculous. And if you stop and think about it for a few minutes, of course it's ridiculous. I did request an interview with Three Bird Nest owner Alicia Schaffer, but she didn't get back to me. She told the New York Times that while she does import some goods, she sells them on her own site, not in her Etsy shop. The fact remains that it's not hard to find items identical to what's in her Etsy shop on sites like eBay and Alibaba. A quick Google search is enough to call into question the quaint narrative of the whimsical stay-at-home mom turned Etsy millionaire. And whether she's making stuff herself, embellishing items she bought in bulk, or simply reselling goods made overseas, her story highlights a simple truth. No one seems to know what belongs on Etsy. This is Susie Garamani. She's an artist and illustrator based in San Diego, California. 
She also teaches part-time at the Rhode Island School of Design. Susie's craft business is called Boy Girl Party. She sells all kinds of products featuring her designs, including stationery, cards, notebooks, t-shirts, onesies, magnets, jewelry, and art prints. She was among Etsy's first users. So Etsy actually reached out to me uh, when they first were launching in beta. I had a kind of thriving online store already on my own website. You know, the, there were like three members and they were the founding people. So it was, it's been a while. <laughs> Etsy's founders saw Susie as the kind of crafter that fit the company's original vision. But then Etsy started redefining that vision. After the 2013 policy change, the company asked Susie to apply to work with an outside manufacturer. Although she's basically a one-woman operation, Etsy now puts her and her business in a totally new category. I did apply to be someone who works with a manufacturing partner because I was told that for something like a printed greeting card that that's considered manufacturing and that it's possible to get kicked off the website if you don't disclose that, which is like, to me, at the time... I was really kind of scared because I'm like, well, I'm not I'm not like going over to factories and having things made by other people like I am involved in every aspect of this. So to me, I feel like I was kind of forced into applying for manufacturing. But I, th I think it's telling a lie, actually, that doesn't benefit me or my business in that it says that I'm not making things that I am making. And although many sellers like Susie and Abby aren't happy with these new rules, they're not ready to close their Etsy shops like Grace did. Not even close. I have a really strong record on Etsy and a really big following on Etsy. And it's kind of like, I think that Etsy sets it up so that if you try to go away, um, they cut off like they cut off that lifeline or whatever. So I have all these, you know, thousands of people that subscribe to my shop through Etsy and are only able to do so through Etsy, can only contact me through Etsy, um, have my listings bookmarked on Etsy, and there's no way to transition that away. So it's almost like if I were to close my Etsy shop completely, like, yes, that would be taking a really firm protest and I wouldn't be giving my money to a company that may not do great things with it going forward. But at the same time, I kind of lose, I would lose everything that I've built over 10 years now. This is my 10-year anniversary on Etsy. When you leave Etsy, you're leaving traffic behind. You're leaving all of those sales behind. You're leaving all of those possible connections with customers who've never found you behind. And so I think it's a mistake. You know, when people badmouth Etsy, I'm like, I love Etsy. A lot of people love Etsy. So much so that Etsy's branding has actually eclipsed the branding of individual sellers on the site. People who are buying on the site at this point, you know, when you ask them who they bought it from, they'll just be like, oh, I got it from Etsy. And you're like, well, which of the millions of sellers did you buy it from specifically? And, you know, it's, it's rare for someone to actually be able to say, you know, who they got it from. Susie is concerned that Etsy's policy changes have altered the way that people think about its sellers. I have noticed in general that I get emails, um, like through Etsy, I'll get like a message with orders that are like, really love your company's work or something like that. Or like, um, hey, you guys, when you see this, can you do blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you guys, your company, like, this is, it's just me over here. Like, hey, it's just, <laughs> just one person. So um, I feel like people are not really realizing anymore that they can be directly changing one person's life. 
Etsy's branding definitely shifted somewhat when the company decided to allow manufactured goods on the site. This is how Etsy describes itself today. We operate a marketplace where people around the world connect both online and offline to make, sell, and buy unique goods. And this is how the company described its mission statement just a few years ago. Etsy is an online marketplace for handmade and vintage items. And we're also a global community of creative people. Our mission is to enable people to make a living making things and to reconnect makers with buyers. Etsy's website still says it's your place to buy and sell all things handmade. But in many cases, it appears to be replacing the word handmade with the word unique. And it's been pretty effective at associating itself with that word. Remember those people on the street we heard from earlier? The reason I love Etsy so much is there, there's a lot of unique gifts that you can't find anywhere else, and I love that handmade touch. The word unique actually appears twice as often as the word handmade in the Etsy prospectus. And when the word handmade does appear, its definition is pretty broad. Whether crafted by an Etsy seller herself, with the assistance of her team, or with an outside manufacturer in small batches, handmade goods spring from the imagination and creativity of an Etsy seller and embody authorship, responsibility, and transparency. This distinction between handmade and unique might not sound all that significant. But some sellers, like Susie, are really concerned about what Etsy will look like in the future. She's decided to relaunch her own independent online store in addition to managing her Etsy shop. It just doesn't make sense for me. It seems like I'm driving so much of my own traffic to Etsy when maybe I should just be driving that traffic to somewhere that's permanent. What is your doomsday scenario? Like, what's the worst that could happen? I had a nightmare last night that there were Etsy stores and malls um, that were like the equivalent of like Spencer Gifts or like Hot Topic, but they were branded as Etsy. And that's what people thought of when they thought of as Etsy. Your items being sold in a store in the mall. Oh, it wouldn't be my items because I'm not able to meet the production volume of someone like Three Bird Nest. It would be that stuff in the mall representing the brand of Etsy that I'm a part of. I certainly don't envy Etsy all the scrutiny they're getting right now. But I can't help but wonder, could the company have done anything differently? I mean, Etsy's growth is good for makers in a lot of ways. And if the company wanted to raise money to keep expanding, did Etsy have any other option but to go public? Investing in the growth of our business and increasing Etsy's visibility will help elevate Etsy sellers and attract more buyers, which creates more opportunities for everyone. Given all the complex issues Etsy is facing in trying to serve its many different constituents, buyers, sellers, and now shareholders, I asked Wall Street Journal reporter Miriam Gottfried for her take on investing in Etsy. I personally would not. Um, I think, first of all, in investing in IPOs is really risky, um, no matter what. They're unproven in a lot of ways, um, especially the ones that are unprofitable. And there's a lot of investors that kind of play the market in the very early stages of a company. I would kind of wait until the dust settles to see how it works out. It'll be interesting to see how Etsy's authenticity conundrum plays out in terms of the company's image and its market value. The cynical part of me thinks that most of Etsy's millions of buyers and sellers won't think deeply enough about the company to question its authenticity. The not-so-cynical part of me 
thinks doubts about Etsy's authenticity could be misplaced. Because like many in the maker community, I want to believe in Etsy's ability to achieve its mission. To reimagine commerce in ways that build a more fulfilling and lasting world. My hope is that Etsy can demonstrate that this kind of goal is not only achievable, but sustainable. No pressure. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Rendered. Our production team includes engineer Brian Kramer, editor Laura Haddon, and me, Julie Sabatier. We get legal help from Cole Haver. Jamie Cuddy is our trusted advisor. Thanks to Jason Rouse for being the voice of Etsy. And we bid a fond farewell this month to our intern, Sasha Peters. Sasha has done some great work behind the scenes at Rendered, and she's also been our people on the street reporter for a couple different episodes now. We will miss her, but we know she's going to do great things with her Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. Congratulations, Sasha. You're awesome. The music in this episode comes from Levi Cecil, Richie Young, and Seth Lorenzi at Two Track Mind. Our website is renderedradio.org. We've got some links up there to Abby Glassenberg's blog and podcast called While She Naps, Susie Garamani's website, Boy Girl Party, and Grace Dobush's website, as well as the piece she wrote for Wired about why she left Etsy. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Rendered Radio. And if you've recently discovered Rendered, welcome. You can find our back catalog on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Yeah, I would I would love to invest in SD. What? Excuse me. <laughs> Etsy. Unique goods. Unique goods. Unique. Unique New York. Words aren't easy to say when you're when you're me. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.